Welcome to our continuing 2018 educational webinar series. I am Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for FIRST Healthcare Compliance. At FIRST Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics to the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Wendy Sternkorb, President and CEO of Sternkorb Consulting LLC with us today. She is a registered radiographer, MRI technologist, and certified radiology administrator. Wendy is a graduate of the University of South Alabama, earning her BS in Radiologic Sciences and her MBA in Finance. She is currently pursuing her PhD in Leadership and Development. Wendy has worked in community and academic and large health system facilities ranging from Mayo Clinic Health System to the University of Chicago Medicine to Johns Hopkins Medicine prior to founding her own consulting business. She is a published author of multiple articles pertaining to patient care and MRI safety. She serves on the board of directors for the American Board of MR Safety, assisting, assisted the American Register of Radiologic Technologists in developing the latest MRI continuing qualifications, and is an active member of the Society of MR Technologists. She serves on the International Society of Magnetic Re Resonance in Medicine, and as the SMRT representative. Wendy is a member of the AHRA, an imaging leadership organization whose mission is to grow and develop imaging leaders. Wendy writes often and works on the editorial review board of several imaging industry publications. A copy of the slide deck is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions in the question box box on the control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate will come directly from PACOM and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There is no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. A download of the handout is available with a button on the bottom right-hand side of your screen. So, Wendy, a warm welcome. Well, thank you, Catherine. I am truly honored to be here today and to share a little bit about MR safety with you. Before we get started, I want to share any financial disclosures. I do own my own consulting company, working nationally with attorneys and globally with facilities administrators technologists and physicians to improve medical imaging safety, and my specialty is MRI. I work with several vendors in a consortium, the primary two being Aegis, the creators of TechGate, and Chea USA, manufacturers of walk-through security and handheld ferrous metal detectors. I will not be promoting any of these products today. And I also want to share here at the beginning that this information that I am sharing is shared with goodwill and is as accurate as I know it to be based on the information available to me today. We all know how dynamic the medical field can be and things can change rapidly. So I do want to put that out there before we go any further. 
So a little bit about me that Catherine didn't share. Yes, I am a graduate of the University of South Alabama. Um, my worked at a small hospital in Fairhope and then moved to Mayo Clinic, the University of Chicago Medicine, and the Johns Hopkins organization. And I'm currently out in western Nebraska at a regional medical center. And I share that to discuss um, my experience in matrix systems, urban academic centers, and in rural health care to, to share that the information is broad and so are the experiences. The American Board of MR Safety, I proudly serve as a board member on to help promote MR safety globally. And the Association for Medical Imaging Management, the AHRA, is an organization that's near and dear to my heart. So thank you very much for, for humoring me with that part of this. And we can move on to some learning objectives that we're going to share today. So we're going to cover a few MR safety basics chat a little bit about how a minimal investment in training can mitigate the risk of adverse events in MRI, discuss the holistic team approach to MR safety, and talk a little bit about the potential labor cost reduction and increase in, in patient volumes that could come with a few little minor changes in your practice. One of the biggest myths in radiology is that to be safe, or to be safer, comes with a great cost, and that there is a huge expense in time, FTEs, energy, to make sure that patients and staff are safe. No one wants their patients to be hurt. No one wants their staff to be hurt. But what we hear as techs from our leaders is, no, we don't want you to hurt anyone. We want you to be safe, but we need you to do this faster. We need you to do it with fewer people. Say yes when the patients need to get in or when the physician calls. Get the patients through, make sure they are satisfied, use all the tools in your toolbox, remember your Prescani scores, and we're asking our technologists to focus on just about everything except safe patient care. Now, most of us who work in medical imaging are at least vaguely aware of the specific dangers and concerns in MRI, and almost all of that knowledge is focused on projectiles entering the magnet room, the giant magnet that's going to attract things that are ferrous. So we're going to talk a little bit about some of the basics of MR safety while addressing some of those myths about what MRI safety, MRI safety is and what it can be. MRI poses some unique safety concerns. Almost everyone is aware that MRI scanners are essentially giant magnets. What they may not know is that in most cases, the magnet is always on. There might be a misconception that if the tech is not available, if we're not taking care of a patient, if a patient's not in the bore of the magnet at any given time, that the magnet is not on, meaning it's not energized. This is rarely the case anymore. This means that the potential for projectiles is always of great concern. What we may not realize is that the impact the magnetic field may have on medical medically implanted devices and foreign bodies is always on as well. The method in MRI used to obtain images is not radiation like that used in diagnostic x-ray or in CT. MRI technologists utilize radio frequency to obtain images. In simple terms, this radio frequency is emitted and deposits energy into the body to excite the hydrogen protons that live there within our body and make up our cells so that those protons emit a signal. 
This signal is then digitally converted into an image. All of that deposited energy may cause heating or burns to the patient if proper precautions have not been taken. There are also the parts of the magnet that make noise. These gradients, which allow for orthogonal imaging or the ability to image in multiple planes, meaning top to bottom or axial imaging, front to back, which is coronal imaging, or side to side, which is sagittal imaging. These create a lot of noise by being switched on and off. In some of the more powerful systems, those gradient noises can exceed 120 decibels for some scanning sequences. The use of proper hearing protection is a must to minimize the potential of acoustic noise damage or hearing damage. And then we have spatial gradient maps for each scanner, and these are unique to that scanner. These are maps that demonstrate the greatest exposure of a specific device that can be exposed um, safely in, in that area. So please understand this. This is determined by the location of that specific device in a specific patient for a specific scanner. The spatial gradient is strongest near the ends or the openings of the magnet and decreased with dis distance. And also at ISO Center is that a very minimal um, exposure. It's still there, but it is minimal, it is less. So what, as leaders, is the responsibility to MR safety? The primary job of any leader is to provide tools to employees to perform at their best, to make the right thing the easy thing to do. It takes skill to be able to do this and absolutely zero ego. So I have a few questions. I wonder, does your facility have set expectations for your staff? Can the staff verbalize these expectations? Have your radiologists signed off on standard protocols? Are they reviewed at least annually? Do you have a standard competency for your team? Are those reviewed regularly? And are they current for each staff member? When was the last time the written processes were reviewed and revised? How about your policies? All of these are tools for each staff member to use if they are readily available. How can we, the leadership team, expect our frontline staff to function at a high level if we are not providing them with the essential tools to do their jobs well? One analogy that I appreciate when it comes to MR safety, or any imaging safety for that matter, involves sailing. If you consider sailors being on a huge boat, the radiologists are the captain of the ship. They're the ones calling the shots and running the show. The administrators are the operations analysts. Your leads or your supervisors or your chief techs, those are your first mates, and your frontline techs, those are your sailors. So I ask you this, are all of your sailors up to the task of clinical MR safety? You may think so, especially if they are registered technologists. But what we need to keep in mind is that the MR registry for technologists sets a minimum expectation, a baseline. It does not, by design, delve into deeper knowledge and skill. You have to dig a little deeper, and you have to seek that out. If you have staff that are not registered and are performing MR procedures, how do you know? or justify that they are competent and skilled enough to provide for safe patient care. 
Deeper knowledge and skill comes with time, experience, and additional training, just as with any other profession. Just as learning new practice standards is for nursing or physicians, or understanding new court rulings for attorneys. And it takes support from the physician team and at the administrative level to make sure that your frontline team is knowledgeable to be providing safe patient care. I have a few more questions for you. So are you aware that you as a frontline tech or you as an administrator or a radiologist, how many patients may have been delayed rescheduled or denied imaging, particularly MRI imaging, due to having coronary stents in their body, or Harrington rods, or orthopedic hardware, or perhaps a BB or another foreign body in the orbit area of the eye, or how about body piercings, or other body art modifications? How many of you, or your staff, or your reds, have ever delayed, rescheduled, or denied a patient MRI imaging due to not knowing how to meet the conditions of a medically implanted device or not understanding your specific MRI scanner spatial gradient map or because you are unsure of the SAR requirements for safely scanning patients with certain medically implanted devices. For those of you that are not frontline leaders or those of you that are radiologists, are you even aware that your technologists may be making medical decisions without your knowledge and that they're doing so because they're trying to be safe and they don't know any other way to be safe other than to not provide care to that patient? So I ask you, how might we reduce the overhead costs and increase patient throughput while improving MRI safety practices? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, here's the myth. The myth is that MRI safety comes at the expense of throughput. And this is something that we as administrators share because we believe it to be true. If we add staff, it's gonna increase the cost. There's not gonna be a lot of return on that investment when it comes to reimbursement. Um, the scrutiny leads to more interruptions, more cancellations. Fewer, um, fewer patients are being seen, more phone calls to the radiologist or to the ordering provider, and that seems to, seems to be a challenge for almost all of us that are working in the field. So as part of a, an official or informal research, my friend and I decided to do a poll on the MRI Safety Group Facebook page, which has a global membership of a little over 19,000 people globally, um, as to what gets most of our attention as frontline folks. Would it be the implants and devices? Would it be burn prevention, hearing, prevent, hearing damage, or projectiles? And here is what we came up with. What gets the most of our attention? And that would be those implants and devices. And after a review of the MOD database, which flawed as it may be, is the only database that we have for reporting of injuries, we came up with this information or discovered this information, how we are harming our patients or how we are reporting that we are harming our patients. And the greatest percentage of injuries that are reported are burns. 
the second being projectiles in the most um, the least likely um, way that we are harming our patients is through implants and devices. And when we look at the correlation between what gets the most attention and what injuries are actually occurring that we are reporting, there doesn't seem to be very much of a time versus injury correlation. It seems like we live in get or done mode. Many MRI safety programs today are the results of legacy. We follow the leader or the most senior technologist and we do it this way because that is the way we've always done it. With a standardized MRI safety program, which includes the tools of policy, procedure, protocol, and practice, there is the opportunity to invest in your staff and assure that they are trained to provide knowledgeable patient care with a team approach. The radiologist, the technologist, and the physicist, and to a lesser degree, but no less important, the patient to make it a team effort. One of the ways we can do this is to rethink what our processes are. So let's assume in your imaging center or in your facility that you image patients in MRI six days a week. Let's assume a 12-hour working day and 40-minute time slots for each MRI exam, knowing that some are going to be a little bit longer and some are going to be a little bit shorter, and, and agree that that will produce approximately 18 scheduled time slots a day. What if you could shave five minutes? off of that scan time? What if you could make it 35 minutes? Some of these may work in your practice, some of them may not. Let's say you don't have a tech aid. If you add a tech aid, yes, that's an FTE, but that FTE, that tech aid, can get the patient off the table while the technologist finishes the study documentation, have the next patient prepared to go, have the patient, have the table cleaned and prepped and staged for the next patient, bring that patient in and get them set up along with the technologist. And the scanning begin while the tech aid then reviews what the next patient's labs or screening could be. That is one way you could potentially shave five minutes off of each, each study. That will allow you 90 additional minutes of available table time each day where you can take care of those two additional patients potentially increasing your volume, increasing your patient satisfaction. And a tech aid of about $250 a day, including their salary and their benefits, and perhaps a subweight area with a little bit of construction that's a one-time cost. And if we assume as two additional patient slots a day and a reimbursement of about $600 a study, that's a CMS um, reimbursement level, those two additional patients that you see, those two additional studies, would equate to about $1,200 a day. Your fixed cost would be paid on day one. After that, you net $950 a day in additional patient revenue. That covers your, your salary and benefits for the tech aid. And that math equates out to a not quite $300,000 a year in additional technical revenue. That's a significant change for five minutes of scan. We have so many questions in MRI, and that's one of the things that 
most nurses on the floors for inpatients, and ordering outside providers have the biggest complaints about. There are so many things that we need to know to provide safe care to our patients. But this is why. We have patients that have implanted devices that may or may not be safe to take into the MRI, or they may be conditional. We want to make sure that people that are untrained are not unsupervised in the MRI area, so we don't have things like ICU beds or anesthesia carts becoming projectiles where they would potentially injure a patient or staff member or worse, or that we don't have people coming into the MRI scan room with ferrous materials in their, in their scrub jackets or their pockets, and that we don't have people that have things like diabetic infusion pumps that are in, on, attached to their bodies that come in because they're unaware that there is an impact for that magnetic field on that medically implanted device. So how can we justify all of these questions, do it smoothly, do it seamlessly, do it faster, and still keep our patients safe? In early 2014, I learned that Dr. Manuel Canal was going to offer a new type of MRI safety course, one that would be geared toward people who fulfilled the role of MRI safety officers. This was a role that was first spoken about, or at least published, in the ACR white paper in, in 2007. <clears throat> and it's not something that there was any formal training of for prior to, prior to this course. Now, I'd been in this role as an MR safety officer for almost my entire career, and I was excited, and to be quite honest, at the same time, I was a bit skeptical. I was excited that there was finally some sort of formalized training for MR safety officers, and I was very skeptical because I was arrogant enough to believe that the way we had always done things was the best way, and anyone acting as a safety officer should already know what Dr. Canal was going to teach. That said, this course was being taught by the Dr. Canal, and the opportunity to learn from him was one I couldn't pass up. So I asked myself what I had hoped to gain from this course and what was my purpose for attending and spending all the money for the fees, the flights, and the hotel. So I asked myself, what were my big problems? It was delays, it was reschedules, it was denials, it was folks that were presenting that had medically implanted devices that we were unaware of, and then we delayed them while we researched and made sure that they were safe to scan. Sometimes they were, often they weren't. And then I wanted to know what my gains would be. What did I expect to learn, and how could I have that impact our practice? As a tech and as a frontline leader, my biggest issues seemed to center around those surprise medically implanted devices I was talking about, and then trying to determine quickly if we could safely scan the patient and having to reschedule or deny so many because we just couldn't know. I hope to gain some patient flow efficiencies, and I hope the impact of what I learned would help me better manage my huge department. So I thought to prove to myself and to my administrative team that this was a worthy, or at least a reinforcement of what I already knew, but a worthy investment. And I began to collect data from my sites and a few others. And sadly, what I learned did not surprise me at all. I had hoped to learn how I could minimize that impact on patient flow and increase efficiencies within the department better efficiency, increased volume, 
better service to our patients, less stress on the technologists, and happier radiologists. That seemed almost too good to be true. So with my sites and a several others, we had 10 clinical scanners between us. We had a total annual MRI volume of around 44,000 MRIs. The time spent investigating medically implanted devices over the course of about three FTEs was about 70 hours a week. Delays and reschedules and denials, denials themselves being about three a day, meaning we were sending away three patients a day that we were not scanning. Guess what? That totally impacted our patient satisfaction scores. Our top box patient satisfaction scores was 32.4% collectively. That's pretty dismal. And our Gallup employee satisfaction scores were just as dismal, 2.65. That included technologists, the physicians, and the administrators. So I attended the course along with two other technologists, and we made a few practice changes post-training. We spoke to our section chiefs, introduced decision tree thinking, or what became known as the canal method, we changed our coronary stent policy, hand walked it through the process, and we did methodical staff education, introducing them, the frontline staff that was actually performing the MRIs, to decision tree thinking and a three bucket analysis. I'll go into that a little bit more in just a few minutes. And then for the following fiscal year, we budgeted for additional staff training for radiologists, technologists, and physicists to get them to this course as well, so we would all be on the same page. Job descriptions now listed MR safety officers that were safety certified as preferred, and we negotiated at least one course for a tech and a rad into each new scanner purchase. And because I left one organization that had in-house physicists to another organization that had outsourced ones, I negotiated a preference for our physicists to be safety certified safety experts. This improved tech relationships with the radiologists. These were intelligent, respectful conversations, whereas in the past, it was very much not. Um, the, the technologists would call and they would want the radiologists to make a decision but not have all the information for them. The radiologists would in turn become short and say, don't call me again, click and hang up the phone. So now with these knowledgeable conversations, there was mutual respect. And we involved risk managers and lean coaches so we could all work on a total methodology to improve patient safety. So one year post-training, we had the same number of resources. We did not add additional clinical scanners. As a result of the policy changes for coronary stents, the education for the three-bucket analysis and canal method of working through medical implanted devices, we had a 32% increase in the number of scans that we did. The, the time spent investigating medically implanted devices went down from 70 hours a week to 24 hours a week. So from 1.75 FTEs down to 0.6, allocating that other 1.15 FTEs for direct patient care. Far fewer delays, far fewer reschedules, and fewer denials. As a result, our top box patient satisfaction scores went up 32 percentile points, and our Gallup employee satisfaction scores went up 2.2 points. That's a huge improvement. 
same number of resources, total annual volume increase, less time spent investigating, increased patient satisfaction scores, and increased employee satisfaction scores. What the technologist learned, as well as the radiologist and the physicist, was that there was no more an immediate no when a patient presented with a medically implanted device. We had learned the knowledge to say yes confidently and to explain the reasoning for that yes to our fellow teammates and to ordering providers and to our radiologists who might not be aware. Confidence to share that same reasoning with cardiologists, with anesthesiologists. And then when we did say no, that no was respected and it wasn't viewed as a way for us to not take care of the patient. This is a very simple but profound change. The greatest knowledge gained was that we are scanning a specific patient, not a device. And that made a huge difference when we went from saying, oh, this patient has a medically implanted device in their body, we cannot scan them, to this patient has this particular stent in this location in their body, we can safely scan this other location and do it safely. This improved our relationships, it built a team effort, and while we realized that we could not boil the ocean, we could impact our sphere of influence. Our radiologists, our technologists, and our imaging nurses are the content experts in imaging. The physicists, the vendors, the field service engineers, and of course the ordering providers are all part of the team and are not adversaries. And the patient gave us better compliance if they understood what was going on. So in an effort to slay this, this myth of MRI safety being too expensive, we had an investment in radiologist training, in physicist training, and in lead technologist training, and our return on our investment was that imaging patients that were previously delayed or refused were now being taken care of. We had a practical and applicable knowledge base. We had fewer radiologist interruptions fewer calls back to the ordering provider, and we had improved patient, technologist, and physician satisfaction. And that increased our retention and our reimbursements because we were taking care of more patients. There are multiple safety roles and responsibilities in MRI. The ones that are listed and spoken of include the MR medical director, which is always a physician, and in this particular case should be a radiologist and they are ultimately responsible for the safety of the patient or the research subject. And they have oversight, and they are resourced for capital purchase <clears throat> and oversight of policies and procedures and protocols. You have your physicist, who is the engineering or the scientific expert for the MRI unit and can assist with acceptance testing and the like. And they can also share what may or may not be beneficial for medically implanted devices. And then you have your workhorse, your MR safety officer, who is most often a, SMR, a senior MRI technologist and our resource to the frontline staff. One of the things that I spoke of earlier were spatial gradient maps. Most folks, particularly MRI techs, but almost everybody outside of that have never seen one of these. And these are spatial gradient maps. This is something that is indicated on medically implanted devices as to where they can be safely scanned. 
where the challenge comes is being able to, number one, visualize these or obtain them from the vendors. Oftentimes you have to specifically request them. And then to understand how they work and how, where the medically implanted device in the body is affected by these particular waves or maps. So let's think about this map for a moment as we look at this case study. So if you have a coronary stent within a labeled condition for a spatial magnetic field of 3T, 3 Tesla, and a 720 gauss per centimeter spatial magnetic gradient, how can you safely, can you safely scan this patient on a 3T with the system maximum MSG of 1100 gauss per centimeter? So most folks will look at the 720 and they'll look at the 1100 and they'll say, nope, I can't do it. I can't safely scan that patient. But if you come back to the previous slide, and if you assume the cardiac stent is going to be just off of midline of the human figure that is in the right hand map, and you see the little waves there, you will see that 720 or 1100 is right around here, and 720 is right about here. So you have your coronary artery stent that is here, that is far away from both of them. This is close to the wall of the magnet. So unless the patient is actually running their chest along the edge of the wall of the magnet, the coronary stent's not going to come in contact with the area greater than where it should be exposed. So yes, you can safely scan this patient with a coronary stent labeled conditional for 3.0 Tesla, 3.0 Tesla, um, and the 720 gradient, per, excuse me, the 720 gauss per centimeter. <clears throat> As I said before, radiologists are the captain of the ship. It's their legal liability and responsibility as the practicing physician for the patient's safety while they are in imaging. The physicists are the advisors. The chief or the lead technologist is the MR safety officer. The technologists are the frontline sailors. And the administrators are the analytical operations partners. So we have busted the myth that there are certain devices that are unscannable. There certainly are, but not all of them. Some of the references that I've used for this presentation include the ACR guidance document on MR safety and the recommended responsibilities for management of MR safety. Do you have any questions? Hi, Wendy. It's Catherine again. Um, we Hi, did Catherine. have some questions. Hi. Um, so that was a really wonderful presentation. I appreciate it. Um, and we did have some questions. Um, thank you. Um, so well, the first one was, uh, does the advent of MRI conditional medical devices help simplify? Does it simplify the screening process? Could you Could you answer that for us? Oh, well, thank you. That's a great question. Simplified? No, not necessarily. But that labeling does give us a starting point. The technologists or the MRI safety officers still have to assure that the conditions of the medical device can be met while maintaining diagnostic image quality. They can then share this information with the physician radiologist so that a sound medical decision can be made after weighing the risks versus the benefits of the MRI procedure. Often, this may mean a physician-to-physician -physician conversation prior to proceeding or certainly prior to canceling the request. 
The key is that the patient, the technologist, the radiologist, and the requesting provider are all working together to assure that the patient receives the most appropriate care at the most appropriate time. Okay, uh, great, great. Um, okay, we have a question about contrast because I know it's been in the media a lot um, in the past several years. So um, um, concerning MRI contrast, um, can you share your thoughts on the safety of MRI contrast? Oh, well, that is certainly a hot topic. Um, the approved gadolinium-based contract agents have historically been considered to be safe and well-tolerated when used at, at appropriate dosing levels. Um, it was previously wildly, widely believed that um, gadolinium-based contrast agents are, are completely excreted from the human body in an intact state. And then in the early 2000s, there was a lot of media attention directed toward MRI contrast agents due to their connection to nephrogenic systemic fibrosis. This disease has contributed to the use of gadolinium-based um, contrast agents in patients with reduced kidney function. And as an industry, practice changes are made and guidelines set to reduce the risk of gadolinium issues within this patient population. Um, more recently, the media, with the help of high-profile patients and their high-profile family members have focused attention to the retention of gadolinium-based contrast agents and the effects they have um, that they feel this is having on them physically. Newer reports have emerged regarding the accumulation of gadolinium in various tissues of patients who do not have renal impairment. And those tissues include bone tissue in the brain and in the kidneys. And despite the observations of gadolinium accumulation in these tissues, regardless of renal function, very limited clinical data <clears throat> regarding the potential for and the mechanisms of this toxicity is available. Now, the retention of gadolinium appears to increase in those who have had repeated gadolinium-based contrast agent exposure. Patient-initiated survey results available through certain patient advocacy groups. Um, can suggest or have suggested that the onset of a series of symptoms in patients within a month of their last MRI include neurological and musculoskeletal and, and dermal symptoms, um, places in their skin or neurological damage or, or deficits that they're noticing. In 2015, given the increasing data available regarding this tissue deposition in patients without renal impairment, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, published a safety announcement that it was investigating the risk of brain deposits—excuse <clears throat> me—the risk of brain deposits associated with the repeated use of these gadolinium-based contrast agents. And in the fall of 2017, the FDA announced in a drug safety communication the requirement for new warnings to be included on all gadolinium-based contrast agents. The FDA also called for increased patient education in requiring gadolinium contrast vendors to conduct additional animal and clinical studies to assess the safety of these agents. Toxicity of gadolinium-based contrast agents has primarily been attributed to the dissociation of the GAD ion from the chelated complexes. And that's a lot of chemistry, and I, I am not the expert in that field, but I can share what little research has discovered, and that is that this disassociation 
is believed to be related to differences in the stability of the complexes among those various types of, of agents. However, there is data that suggests that competitive chelation of components in the extracellular matrix may also play a role in the tissue distribution and the toxicity of the, the contrast agent. Unequivocal data regarding the effects of multiple exposures to these gadolinium-based contrast agents is very limited. There is information regarding the stability and the emerging data regarding gadolinium tissue accumulation in those with normal kidney function indicate that the potential for toxicity associated with these gadolinium-based contrast agents has to be seriously and urgently considered. In industry-wide, we have taken notice. The use of certain agents has been banned in Europe. Research continues to definitively connect causality and explore the clinical significance of retention. My advice to patients is to make yourself knowledgeable about MRI contrast and have frank discussions with your provider about the risk and the benefits of having MRI exams with contrast. That said, the contrast provides is a valuable tool and provides information to radiologists that will help make a definitive diagnosis. So make sure that those conversations occur not only with you as a patient to your ordering provider, but also with the radiologist so you can make the best decision for you as a patient. Okay, thank you. Thank you. That's a lot to think about. Yeah. Okay, uh, we had another question uh, having to do with uh, standards. Uh, is there a national or a global standard for MRI safety? Global? No, not at all. Even nationally in the United States, there are regulations by the FDA that are, are designed to ensure the safety and effectiveness of medical devices, including the MRI scanners themselves. But for the operators of, the, their equipment, or of this equipment, there's, there's really only guidelines. Regulatory bodies, such as the American Registry of Radiologic Technologies, have standards of performance for MRI-registered technologists. They have competencies that each technologist should be able to consistently perform to attain and retain their registry status. The Joint Commission and Accrediting Body revised, some diagnos revised the diagnostic imaging requirements in 2015 to include verbiage that states that Facilities where MRIs perform must document ongoing annual education, including MRI safe practices for MRI technologists, but there are minimal guidelines as to what that training should include. There is a mention in the element of performance HR.01.05.03 about patient screening and proper positioning to prevent burns and response within the MRI environment for emergent or urgent medical needs and the use of hearing protection and how to assist patients with anxiety or claustrophobia, but there are no specifics as to what those guidelines or what those elements should be. There are specific guidelines about access control and signage postage, but there are less defined guidance about the education and training of staff members performing the MRI procedures. There are no requirements of formal education to perform MRI. This is facility dependent and is often it's the same tired old video and PowerPoint used year after year, so we can check the box. And I think we can do better than that. Regardless of the lack of required standards, the surveying bodies, such as the Joint Commission, will certainly be thorough in assuring compliance with what they have outlined. And one of the de facto arg arguments or the de facto documents used for arguments for MRI safety is that 
um, white paper on MRI safety from the ACR, and the latest version of that is from 2013. And that about wraps me up, unless there are other questions. I think that's good for right now. Um, if we do have other questions, um, I will forward them on to you, or our attendees can certainly um, send them directly to you. I'm glad you have your, um, I was going to ask you if you had your um, uh, contact information, so I'm, I'm glad you have that right there. Uh, do you have any other uh, final words of advice for us that you can offer? There's a better way to do just about everything, and there is a way for us to improve our MRI safety practices so that we can assure that we are taking the best care of our patients. Some of that will require from an organizational administration an investment in education and training, but the return is, is threefold with improved employee satisfaction, safer patient care, and in many cases, increase in patient revenue and volumes. So I, I hope my presentation has helped demonstrate some of that. And if there are any additional questions, I'm happy to answer those. And thank you very much for having me on today. Well, thank you so much, Wendy. I, it was so informative, and I really appreciate it. And I know our audience is, is going to really appreciate this as well. Um, audience uh, and attendees, please use the contact information on the screen um, for any questions. And if you send us any questions, we'll forward them on to Wendy as well. Um, please remember your PACOM and your PMI CEU certificate will be emailed to you uh, within two days following the broadcast, uh, most likely sooner. Uh, there's no need to request it. You can also register for any future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com. You can also call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you for joining us.